God's people are not immune to discouragement. And I expect that I don't have to defend that statement to you. Uh, Despite all the blessings of salvation, all the privileges of fellowship and communion with God and his people, each one of us would acknowledge if we've walked with Christ for any significant length of time that there are times when disappointment and discouragement and sometimes even disillusionment get the better of us. This is not a perfect world. We still labor under the curse of sin. Externally, where sin has plagued the world with brokenness and futility, and internally, as the remaining sin in our flesh causes a perpetual war within. God's people are not immune to discouragement. We're not even immune to discouragement with God himself. As truly ludicrous as that is, it's true, isn't it? Because disappointment with our circumstances is disappointment with the God who is the author and governor of all our circumstances. No event, no happening, no aspect of our lives whatsoever falls outside the purview of God's absolute sovereignty and meticulous providence. And so in times of sustained disappointment, in seasons of discouragement, when it seems like you've ordered your own life according to God's commandments, and yet the the promises of blessing that attend obedience just simply don't seem to materialize, in those times we can be tempted to become disillusioned even with God himself. Maybe you've sought for many years to find a godly spouse. You know, you've done all that you can think of to ensure that you are the right person for another Christian, and yet the Lord simply hasn't seen fit to give the gift of marriage. Or maybe you've raised your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and despite training them up in the way they should go, now that they're adults, they reject the faith reject the gospel, and live in rebellion. Perhaps you've battled against a particular besetting sin, and you hoped by now, after attending to all the means of grace, that there would be further progress in sanctification. Or you look at the culture, and you see it in absolute chaos. You may be old enough to remember a time when the church's influence on the world seemed strong, And now it seems it's virtually non-existent. In one way or another, you begin to doubt whether God really does keep his promises, whether his word really is trustworthy. I mean, you you know that he does keep his promises, but for some reason, it, it seems like that's not so in your case. And so you become disappointed with God and you cry out to him, what are you doing, God? Where are you? Where's the fulfillment of your promises? And when that happens, it's not like you renounce Christianity. You don't just throw up your hands and say, okay, that's it. I'm going back to the world. I'm going to live like a pagan. You know better than that. But you begin to act like that just a bit. You, come to, you become a functional unbeliever. You go through the motions still, you come to church, you go to Bible study, 
you still read your Bible, maybe you might even still pray. But in all the outward spiritual activity, there is an inward apathy, a lifelessness, a heartlessness in all your acts of so-called worship. Well, a similar phenomenon was taking place in Israel in the day of the prophet Malachi. Malachi, along with Haggai and Zechariah, was one of the post-exilic prophets. They ministered after Judah's return from the Babylonian exile in 538 B.C. Judah had indeed returned to the land, a remarkable providence of God's grace and faithfulness. But things weren't exactly glorious. The returning exiles had numbered only around 150,000, and they'd been reduced to being a minor province of the Persian Empire on a strip of land about 20 by 25 miles long. And when they returned, the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins. And the book of Ezra documents the well-organized opposition to rebuild both the temple and the city walls. Things were not easy. But about 20 years after the return, of, uh, return from Babylon, God sent Haggai and Zechariah to speak his word to his people Israel. And by and large, their message was one of great promise and great encouragement. In Haggai 1.8, the prophet commands Zerubbabel to rebuild Yahweh's temple in the place of Solomon's temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. And so Israel went to work. And Ezra tells us in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that when just the foundation of the temple was laid, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals. They sang, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh. But in the very next verses, Ezra says, chapter 3, verse 12, that, quote, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice. Such a curious scene. Fanfare and rejoicing and thanksgiving on the one hand, and yet weeping and wailing and mourning on the other. So much so that the people couldn't distinguish the shouts of celebration from the cries of mourning. And Haggai explains why in chapter 2 and verse 3. God says to the people, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So it was plain that the temple of Zerubbabel paled in comparison to the temple of Solomon in its splendor and its beauty in the glory days of the united monarchy. And the evident difference between those glory days in the United Monarchy under David and Solomon and the little ragtag, ragtag tribe of survivors from captivity reminded Judah that they were not what they used to be. But Yahweh went on to promise in Haggai 2.6 that he would once again shake the heavens and the earth and that all the nations would come with their wealth and fill the temple of Yahweh with glory. In Haggai 2.9, that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give shalom. I will give peace, wholeness, 
rest, security. God says, you may be weeping for the glory of Solomon's temple, but I tell you that a day is coming where the glory of the the temple in this place will be greater even than Solomon's. And the prophet Zechariah brings this same message of hope. Zechariah 8.2, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Verse 3, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. It will be the city of truth and the holy mountain. And then Zechariah 8.4, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Zechariah 8, 7, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And then in the final verses of Haggai, we find that God's chosen servant, the descendant of Zerubbabel, would come and be as Yahweh's signet ring, overthrowing the nations and bringing all of these promises to pass. So the temple will be magnificent. The city that once lay in rubble and ruins will be filled with people who survive to old age because of the security of the land. Children are going to play in the streets. Messiah will come. Israel will be my people. I will be their God. My covenant promises will come to pass in all their glory. But Malachi prophesies in the mid to late 400s BC, somewhere between 60 to 80 years after the rebuilding of the temple and all of those glorious promises of God through Haggai and Zechariah. And in 60 to 80 years, Judah saw no such messianic renovation. They were still under the thumb of the Persian Empire, whose taxes and tributes kept Judah in economic depression. Malachi 1.8 speaks of the people's governor, a reference to the, the Persian provincial system. The land was not yielding produce fruitfully. Malachi 3.11 speaks of a devourer that was destroying the fruits of the ground as a result of God's judgment for disobedience. The Shekinah glory of God had not yet filled Zerubbabel's temple the way that it had in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 or in the in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, Malachi 3.1 speaks of a day when the Lord will come to his temple in the future. But that meant that in spite of everything Haggai and Zechariah promised, he was not there yet. So the Messiah hadn't come. Jerusalem hadn't been restored. The temple wasn't magnificent. And so on the heels of all of these glorious promises of restoration, Israel began to wonder where God was and when he was going to fulfill all these great promises. And after years and years of waiting and hoping, both the priests and the people became disillusioned. One commentator writes, God's promises seemed a cruel mockery. Things had not improved since the final decades of the 6th century. The Messiah had not yet come. And the people had by and large given up trusting God to do anything. We get a glimpse of their attitude in chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15 where God gives voice to the people's complaints. He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. 
And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. So you can hear the disillusionment, dis- disillusionment and disaffection, this jaded cynicism. What is the point of all of this? We rebuilt the city. We rebuilt the temple. We're offering the sacrifices. Where's the promised restoration? All we see are the pagans being built up and blessed. God had let them down. He hadn't kept his promises, so they thought. The enemies of righteousness prosper, while those who seek to follow God languish. And so they left off in their devotion to God and into obedience to his commandments. Right at the center of the book, chapter 2 and verse 10, we get a summary of the entire problem. Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Widespread covenant disobedience. The breaking of the covenant law of Moses, betraying one another and dealing unjustly. The priests were just going through the motions while offering blemished sacrifices. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6 through, through to chapter 2, verse 9. In chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, we learn that the people had engaged in widespread divorce and intermarried with pagans. They had left off their tithes and offerings, chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Times were tough, and so rather than giving to God of their first fruits, they held back their money for themselves. So you see the attitude, apathy, indifference, disillusionment. You know, God doesn't seem to care about us anymore. Why should we care about him? If he doesn't keep his word, why should we worry about keeping his word? And so in this context, God sends the prophet Malachi to rebuke Israel for their faithlessness. And Malachi does this by means of six disputations. God comes to argue with his disaffected people. And each of these disputations all have the same formula. There's an assertion by God, like, I have loved you in these opening verses, There's Israel's insolent rejection of God's declaration. But you say, how have you loved us? And then there's God's response or rebuttal to Israel's rejection. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And we see that formula all throughout the book, structured in six disputations. I'll just mention them. You have them, chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Chapter 2, verse 17 through to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. And then chapter 3, verses thir- verse 13 through to f- chapter 4 and verse 3. And so God has come to this disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned people to give voice to their complaints against him for what they believe is his failure to keep his promises, and he comes to dispute with them, to engage them in debate, to test their accusations against sound argumentation, and to convict them as if in a courtroom of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, 
and to prove that his promises have not failed, that he will keep his covenant unto the glory of his own name. And so, dear Christian, if you have ever found yourself disappointed with the circumstances of your life, if you have ever doubted the faithfulness of God's promises because of that, if you've ever been tempted to blame God because of it and become lax and apathetic in your devotion to Him, then the message of Malachi is for you. God comes to reason with us. He comes to dispute with us. He comes to expose the wicked reasonings of our heart, to call us to repentance and faithfulness. But He also comes to restore our souls, to encourage us, to convince us of His own unfailing faithfulness as well, of his, as, as well as of his eternal, immutable, covenant love for his people. And as we come to the first five verses of God's word to Israel through Malachi this morning, we find that this book of argument and debate and rebuke begins in quite an unexpected way. It begins with a message of love. Let's read the opening five verses. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This introduction to Malachi's prophecy basically breaks down into four parts, each around the theme of God's faithful love for his faithless people. First is the declaration of God's love. The declaration of God's love. Verse 2, I have loved you says Yahweh. I have loved you. The verb is in the perfect tense, which speaks of an action that has taken place in the past whose results continue into the present. And the love of God consists in the determinative act of God's will to benefit his beloved. That's what God's love is. The determinative act of his will to benefit his beloved. And so understand that God is not coming to his faithless, disobedient people and saying, you know, I just think you're great. You know, I know you're going through a tough time, but I want you to know I love you. No, it, it's not something so sentimental or saccharine as that. He's drawing their minds to a very specific act of love bestowed on them in the past, the results of which continue even into the present day. 
And what act of love was that? It was God's sovereign choice of Israel to be his covenant people. The unconditional election of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the undeserved heir of God's gracious promises. We can see that in two important passages in the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Moses is delivering the covenant law to the second generation of Israelites, those who are about to take possession of the land of Canaan. And he says in Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15, Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did Yahweh set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Notice how Moses uses all of those terms synonymously. Set affection on, love, and chose. And then turn back a few chapters to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. There Moses says, Yahweh did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers that's why he set his love on you he set his love on you because he loved you and you see it here again set his love choose loved kept the oath when God comes to Judah in the late 5th century B.C. and calls them Jacob, Jacob I loved, and declares that he has loved them, he is referring to this. I have chosen you out from among all the nations of the world. I have set my love on you. I have established my covenant with you. I have made you my people. One commentator said the love of Yahweh is an act of election which makes Israel Yahweh's child. And that's exactly right. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, God says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. Love makes them his son. I redeemed you out of slavery. I led you through the wilderness. I gave you the land I've promised. I set my love on you. I made you my son and I swore on the honor of my own name to bless you forever. I chose you. I have loved you. And this ought to move us to worship God for his grace. See, God will rebuke his people for their covenant disobedience for their divorce and intermarriage with pagans, for their corrupt priesthood and heartless worship, for their oppression of the poor and the withholding of offerings from God, and even for their insolent accusations against the justice of God. But before he does all that, he begins with a message of reassurance, with a message of good news, with a declaration of his steadfast, loyal, unchanging covenant love. Before he confronts them with the holy standard of his law, he comforts them 
with the gracious promises of the gospel. I know you're under the thumb of the Persians. I know you're an insignificant province on a small strip of land. I know you think that I've forgotten my promises to you, but I assure you, I have loved you. I have joined you to myself. I've put my own name upon you. Jeremiah 13, 11, for as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. You will receive covenant promises. You will be a blessing to the nations. Hosea 11, 8, and 9, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Every rebuke that I will issue to, issue to you comes in the context of the truth that you are still my people and I am still your God. And dear Christian, you are no less covenant bound to Yahweh than Judah was. In fact, we might say we're even more covenant bound to him if such a thing were possible because we live in the age of fulfillment, because we partake of the new covenant, because we are united to Messiah, the mediator of the better covenant. And so in your disappointment and in your discouragement, in your faithlessness and disobedience, God nevertheless comes to you first with the gospel assurance of his steadfast covenant love to you for Christ's sake. I have loved you, dear people. I have chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And my grace will bring my promises to pass. See how faithful he is, even to the faithless who are in him, who are in Christ. But how does Israel respond to this declaration of God's love? Certainly not the response that such lavish grace deserves. That brings us, secondly, to the disputation of God's love. There was the declaration of God's love, now the, di the disputation of God's love. Look again at verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? And that is every bit as disrespectful, insolent, ungrateful, and exasperated as it sounds. One commentator says this response rings with petulance and perversity. Another, another says it measures the depth of despair, doubt, and cynicism in the restoration community. It really is an astonishing response. Basically indicates that Israel is disputing every aspect of the covenant election that we've just surveyed. These people who had been brought back from exile into their land these people who had seen the temple rebuilt, who had seen the walls of Jerusalem be restored, all on the very basis of the covenant love and sovereign election of Yahweh, 
are denying the covenant love and sovereign election of Yahweh. How have you loved us? Look at us. We're nobodies. We're on a tiny strip of land. We're servants of the Persians. You've cursed our crops. The economy is terrible. The temple can't compare to Solomon's. There's no glory cloud, no Ark of the Covenant. You've promised restoration in a kingdom. We don't see any of it. Where is this covenant love of yours? Now be honest with yourselves. Does any of that sound familiar? Would any of you acknowledge that sometimes you are tempted to be so consumed with your circumstances or with the state of the world or the state of the country or the state of the church that you begin to feel sorry for yourself? And all the glorious divine privileges of blessings in Christ just seem far away to the point that you even begin to question the love and faithfulness of God who is abounding in truth and loving kindness. This passage counsels you to confess the petulance and perversity of such a thought. That those thoughts are sinful. That they are unworthy to be thought of such a God. The one who is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. If you're there this morning, let this text bring you to repentance. Let the word of God work repentance in your heart, even now. But how does God respond to his people's disputation of his love? That brings us, number three, to the demonstration of God's love. The demonstration of God's love. Look again at verse 2. How have you loved us? And God replies, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? declares Yahweh. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God demonstrates his assertion that he has loved the descendants of Jacob by drawing a contrast between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Jacob's brother, Esau. And you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, we learn that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is pregnant with twins. And even from the womb, these two brothers struggled with one another. And God told Rachel that two nations were in her womb and that the older would serve the younger. Esau was the firstborn, and so he should have had the inheritance of the patriarchal blessing from Isaac. But before Isaac could have ever set his love upon Esau, his firstborn, God set his love on Jacob. God chose the younger Jacob to inherit the blessings of the covenant, and he chose his line rather than Esau's to be the one from whom Messiah would come and bless the nations. This is what God means when he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Loved and hated here are covenantal terms. Love is not sentimental gushiness. And hate is not personal animosity in this text. As we saw before, God's love of Jacob speaks of the Father's sovereign election of Israel to be his covenant nation. Yet on your fathers did 
Yahweh set his affection to love them and he chose their descendants after them. Love chose. In Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. So to love here speaks of covenantal choice and to hate speaks of covenantal rejection. You see that same dichotomy in Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or in Luke, 20, Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, surely Jesus isn't saying that his disciples are supposed to walk around muttering, boy, I just can't stand my parents and my spouse and my kids and my siblings. No, the point is, if it ever happens that you have to choose between faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to family, you reject your most treasured earthly relationships and you love Christ by choosing him. And so God is telling Israel that he has loved them by setting his unconditional covenant favor upon them and that he has hated Edom by rejecting them from being his covenant nation. And this choice was entirely unconditional. God's love is not bestowed on those he loves because of anything in them. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8, where Moses tells Israel again, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number. It was simply because Yahweh loved you. In Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5, he tells them, do not say because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to, to, going to possess their land. It's because Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. And then in Romans chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is illustrating God's sovereign freedom in his unconditional election of individual sinners to salvation, he uses this very discriminating choice between Jacob and Esau to substantiate his case. Romans 9.11 for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as, I, just as it is written, and then he quotes our passage in Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this puts the lie to the notion that God chose Jacob because he was virtuous and that God rejected Esau because he was wicked. Sure, Esau was no prize. Genesis 25 says he despised his birthright, that token of what would have been God's covenantal love to him. He regarded it so lightly that he sold it for a bowl of soup. Genesis 26, 34 to 35 says he married a Hittite and brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. During the Exodus, 
Numbers 20 says that Edom refused to grant Israel passage through the town of Kadesh, even withstanding them with military force. Psalm 137, along with the entire book of Obadiah, records how Edom came to the aid of Babylon as they destroyed Jerusalem and brought Israel into captivity. There's plenty not to like about Esau, plenty not to like about his descendants, Edom. But God says Esau's sins were not the basis of his rejection of him. And at the same time, Jacob was no saint himself. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. God didn't choose Jacob because he foresaw that Jacob would be better than Esau. No, Romans 9 tells us that works have nothing to do with God's election. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. The basis for God's election of some and his rejection of others is grounded entirely in him who calls, not at all in the works of those who were called, whether good or bad. Divine election, dear people, is unconditional. And yet, how has that unconditional choice worked itself out? Look at verses 3 and 4. I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we've been beaten down, but we'll return and build up the ruins, thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. This is truly astonishing. This love of Jacob and hatred of Esau is not just some sort of esoteric theoretical bookkeeping in God's mind. God's election of, of Jacob and Israel and rejection of Esau, Edom, has teeth. The mountains of Seir that protected the territory of Edom were no match for Yahweh's sovereign purpose to execute judgment. Obadiah prophesied this very thing in verses 3 and 4 of his prophecy. There, God says to Edom, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down. And God says in our verse, he's done that. He has made these lofty, impregnable mountains of Edom a desolation. He's made the land of their inheritance the place where jackals abide. The jackal's a wilderness animal. So God's saying, I've turned Edom into a wilderness. How'd that happen? At the time of the Babylonian campaign against Israel in 600 to 586 BC, Edom is assisting Babylon in Judah's destruction and is conquering parts of their territory as they're carried away into exile. What happens by the late 400s BC, not even 200 years later? Well, the historical record isn't perfectly clear, but we do know the Babylonian king Nabonidus conducted several military campaigns against Edom beginning in 522 BC. And then by 312 BC, the Nabataean Arabs had totally overrun the Edomite territory. So between the Babylonians and the Nabataeans, God had kept his promise of Edom's destruction. Esau's land 
was a desolate wilderness fit only for the jackals. And that language, that language would not have been lost on Judah in Malachi's day. In Jeremiah 9 and verse 11, God makes that same promise of destruction on Judah for her disobedience, a destruction which came in the form of the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 9, 11, God says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So you see, the same threat of judgment that came upon Jacob's land for their disobedience did eventually come upon Esau's land for, for their disobedience. <clears throat> You're going to be a desolation and the place for jackals. I'm going to make your place a haunt of jackals and a desolation. But what's the difference between the two nations? The difference is Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The difference is, if Edom tries to rebuild, God is going to tear down. Their land will henceforth be known as the territory of wickedness, not the city of truth, like Zechariah says of Israel, not the holy mountain. No, these mountains will be cast down, and Yahweh's indignation will abide on them forever. And you've never met an Edomite. But here Israel is, in her land, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, alive and breathing. How have I loved you? Was not Esau your brother? Weren't you twins? I could have just as easily set my electing love on him as I, instead of you, couldn't I? And, and I certainly didn't choose you over him because of anything in you. In fact, since he was the oldest, it would have made more sense if I chose him, wouldn't it? How have I loved you? You deserve your land to be a desolation left to the jackals just as much as he does. And yet here you are back in your land while Edom lies in ruins. You couldn't have done a thing to free yourselves from Babylon. It took me raising up Cyrus and delivering you. And you know what? If Edom ever musters the strength to try to rebuild their land with the same sovereignty with which I delivered you, by that very same sovereignty, I will tear them down. How, how have I loved you? I haven't given you over to yourselves and left you in your state of deserved condemnation the way that I did to those who deserve that condemnation no less than you. How does God demonstrate his love to his people? He points to the judgment of those who were not his people and he says, that could have been you. And I wonder, friends, if you've ever considered the, the judgment of God that falls upon those who are outside of Christ and felt loved by God. Because we learn from this passage that at least one way that God demonstrates his love to his elect is by displaying to us his hatred for the reprobate. 
That is not a truth you hear about often in contemporary evangelicalism. But will you deny that it's the teaching of this very text? How have you loved us? Are you kidding me? Look at Esau. In his inscrutable wisdom, God has chosen to set his saving love upon some and not others. Those whom he passes by receive justice. They receive the just punishment of their sins. But those whom he chooses, those whom he, on whom he sets his covenant love, they receive grace. Nobody gets injustice. The reprobate get justice and the elect get grace. And I wonder if you've ever considered, Christian, your unbelieving sibling who grew up in the same home as you, who was evangelized by the same parents, who went to the same church, who heard the same sermons. I wonder if you've considered the futility of the life that they're living now, wasting their lives on the broken cisterns of alcohol and drugs, of casual sex and meaningless relationships, of money and fame here on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, which before long will perish with fire. And I wonder if you've considered your life in comparison. Your quiet, hardworking, what may seem uneventful life. Work and church and Bible study and prayer, a humble life, a life that's not much to write home about, a life that looks boring and dull to many. And seeing them both, I wonder if you've ever felt loved by God. I wonder if you've trembled, if you've been moved to tears, that because of nothing at all that distinguished you from your unbelieving brother or sister or friend or coworker, God chose you and entered into covenant with you and appointed such a one as lovely as Christ to be your mediator and to bear your sins in his own body on the cross and rescued you from a wasted life of what is ultimately joyless futility, no matter how many pasted smiles the, wo the world wears, and rescued you from an eternity of just punishment in hell. Think of who you were before Christ and think of all the fruitless, meaningless things that you could be doing with your life right now. At 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, instead of being in church, sleeping off a hangover, or regretting a night spent with somebody whose name you don't remember. And yet here you sit in the household of God under the means of his grace in fellowship with his people with a clean conscience, with your sins forgiven, with Christ's righteousness draped across your shoulders and under the smile of Almighty God and with an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you, friends. 
The circumstances of your life might be bad. The Lord of providence may be putting you through a crucible uh, of of a set of trials that I wouldn't wish on my enemies. But even in the midst of the deepest possible pain, this is an anchor of the soul. This is how he has loved you. you. I've given you to my son. I've given my son for you. I've put the robe of his obedience upon you. I have adopted you as my own son or daughter and welcomed you into the household of God. It's true, Job 24, 24, the wicked are exalted a little while, but then they are gone. They are brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they're cut off. But the righteous man, says Psalm 92, 12, will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of Yahweh. They will flourish in the courts of our God. I have loved you, and I have not loved them because of nothing in either of you, only because of my free, sovereign grace. But God isn't finished. We've seen the declaration of God's love, the disputation of God's love, the demonstration of God's love. Let's consider just briefly the display of God's love. The display. Look at verse five. Your eyes will see this And you will say, Yahweh, be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Judah was saying that they hadn't seen any tangible evidence of Yahweh's love for them. God says, oh, you're going to see. You're going to watch as I destroy my enemies and exalt my faithless people. You will search in vain for an Edomite. But the seed of Abraham will be as numerous as stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. And when you see it, there won't be any of this, but how have you loved us? No, you know what you're going to say then? You're going to say, Yahweh be magnified. God's name be lifted up and exalted. May the name of the Lord be praised from the mountaintops. Glory be to God for his unwavering faithfulness and steadfast love. Look at Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. And among the nations, beyond the border of Israel, verse 5 says, You see, this glorious, faithful, covenant-keeping, loving God is not just king over the Levant. His domain is not merely some strip of land in the Middle East. He is the king of the nations, and God has magnified his name beyond the border of Israel, hasn't he? You and I sitting here today are evidence of that. There may be a few of us here who were descendants of Jacob, but I would guess that the overwhelming majority of us are Gentiles. What's happened? The name of Yahweh has been magnified beyond the border of Israel. Through Jesus Christ, descendant of David, the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth have been blessed. And in Galatians 3, 8 and 9, 
Paul quotes that very promise that all the nations would be blessed in Abraham, and he calls that the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. That through Abraham's seed, God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Let me read Galatians 3, 8, and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And then he goes on to preach that very gospel, not the one that was, well, not the way that it was preached to Abraham, but now the way that it may be preached in the time of fulfillment, Galatians 3.10. For as many are, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You want to get to heaven by your works? You think you're a good person and God understands you? Fine. The standard is perfect obedience. Perfect adherence to every law that God has revealed in his word. Otherwise, you are under the curse of God. That's not me. That's Holy Spirit. And who does that describe? That describes every last one of us. Every last one of us has failed to render perfect obedience to every command of God. Not for an hour of our lives have we ever done such a thing. And so we are cursed. But, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. All the punishment for all the sins of all the people whom God has loved, whom he has chosen and set his love on. Every ounce of the just wrath of God against the sins of the elect broke over the head of Christ as he suffered on Calvary. And he died and he was buried, but he rose in victory on the third day and he promises that everyone who trusts in him alone for righteousness will be saved. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you have not tasted the sweetness of knowing Christ, if you've not savored the grace of his forgiveness by faith alone apart from works, I call you to repent of your sins, to abandon all confidence in yourself, to earn your way to heaven and put all your hope for righteousness squarely on the shoulders of this glorious Savior. And to my brothers and sisters who have trusted him, rejoice. Rejoice that this God is your God. This God who sets his love upon the undeserving. This God who comes to reassure even the faithless with his unchangeable love and covenant faithfulness. Who says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Oh, the grace in that verse. He has put his own name upon you, Christian. And he cannot deny himself. And you didn't do anything to convince him to put his name on you. He does it freely, out of pure grace. And listen to this, because he does, he now pursues your good with all the zeal and fervor with which he pursues the honor of his own name. 
and you heard it, my name will be great. And when your heart grabs a hold of that, that free, sovereign gospel assurance that we are loved despite our faithlessness, you lay hold of a powerful motive for faithfulness. You understand? Just as no works of our own made God begin to love us, so no works of our own can make God stop loving us. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And to be assured of that is a powerful motive to make war against sin and to run hard after holiness. It is not license to care nothing for holiness. Like, well, I'm loved anyway. What, what does it matter if I fight sin? God and I are good. He's loved me and I'm, he's faithful even when I'm faithless. No, no, no. If your heart apprehends this, that is not your response. Not ever. Your response is, how could a God so great love me and I live out of accord with that grace that I've been shown? No, I will set my hand to the plow of Christian holiness. I will mortify that nagging sin. I will get up an hour earlier to open my Bible and get on my face before this God just to remind myself of the free justification that I enjoy by grace alone so that I can set my feet upon the rock of a righteousness not my own and press on to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of. We don't do any of this in order to be loved. We do it because we have been loved. I have loved you. Let's pray. And Father, may we love you in return. May your love to us land in our hearts, the full apprehension of the breadth and height and depth of it. May it come home into our hearts so that we would be changed by it, so that we would lay aside these sins that we dally with, that bring no joy, no fruit, that bring only bitterness and misery, and, and lay hold of the practical righteousness that Christ the righteous one has purchased for us, even as he purchased justifying righteousness for us. All that we can learn from the, about the character of our God from his dealings with the post-exilic Judah. Help us as we set our minds on the truths of Malachi in the weeks to come to squeeze out every drop of blessing that, it, that comes from knowing your name, which, we, which will be great among the nations, which is great among the nations, but which will be greater still when the final fulfillment of all of these promises comes in its fullness as Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth and reigns over the nations. We pray that you would speed the day of that coming and that you would enter into what you are worthy of, Lord Jesus. But before that consummation, may you get what you are worthy of from us now where the kingdom has broken forth into our hearts, where every man is a new creature if he is in Christ, where there's been a new creation in our hearts. May there be a new creation in our minds, in our speech, in our affections, 
in our hands and feet as we walk and serve one another and serve you. May it be that at the outset of this year of 2024, many who have pretended to know your name but know it not would bow the knee and would come and trust upon Christ alone for righteousness. May it be that many who have trusted Christ but who have not let go of the things of the world, who have a a, a cherished sin or sins, may they put them away in light of the beauty of your love to your own. And may we always know the powerful motive to holiness that is the truth that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And because you've set your name upon us, we'll pursue our good with the fervor with which you pursue your own honor. Get your honor from your people. Get what you are worthy of from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.